And today we're going to explore a topic that is, in my view, so life-changingly beautiful, so astounding that it can be really difficult to picture. And so I want to help us unravel a bit of the mystery today as we talk about what it means to be alive with Christ. Here in Ephesians 2, which is our text for this morning in our series um, in Ephesians, New Way to Be Human. Uh, And we're going to spend some time unraveling it like this, okay? Being alive with Christ means your past is forgiven, your present is meaningful, and your future is glorious. Now, here's the cool thing. Easter is right around the corner, as you know. And of course, we'll celebrate uh, the resurrection of Jesus, and I'm really hoping that today we'll sort of be a helpful precursor, okay, to our Easter celebration, because here's what I think can happen if we're not careful. Ready? Easter can easily become more about tradition than transformation. In other words, we forget uh, what it means for us today, and just as bad, if not worse, we kind of forget what it means for our future as well. And we kind of celebrate that Jesus conquered sin in the grave, right, on Easter. And then we go eat a ham for some reason, when it's so obvious we should be eating a prime rib. I, I, don't, I don't know why we do that. Uh, and then we, we go about our business uh, without ever really fully taking in what it means, what the implications of being alive with Jesus really means. And maybe, you know, in the past, we've kind of connected that that phrase, right? Being alive with Christ. We've maybe connected that to, you know, like, I don't, I don't know, maybe having a good day, like, like, man, I'm feeling alive with Christ today. Or, you know, maybe you know somebody who's, uh, you know, really spiritual, or maybe they've had this like real spiritual awakening. And you think now there's someone who's alive with Christ. I mean, Probably not, right? We're, we're more familiar with language that says that we're loved and we're chosen and we're accepted and we're approved of and we're wonderfully made. That's all true, and that's all very much worth celebrating. But I believe it's critically important to understand that resurrection for Jesus means resurrection for you and I. Don't miss that. Resurrection for Jesus means resurrection for you and I. So how should we think about that this morning? Let's take a look at our text. This is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It says this, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, 
he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he's done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. So God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward. Catch this. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. So Paul begins by telling the story of how Christians came to know Jesus, right? He says that before hearing about Jesus, they were physically alive, but spiritually dead. So they're, they're trapped in this sort of like purposeless life. They're deceived by these dark spiritual forces, he says. And, you know, this kind of means that they're cut off, right? They're cut off from the light and the life of God. And that used to be us, right? Make the connection with me. That's us before Jesus. But, incredibly, verse 4, God's so merciful. He's so merciful, and he rescues us by his grace, and he forgives our mess-ups and joins our life with Jesus' resurrection life. And in doing so, he brings us back to life, too. So now we're these new human beings, We've, we've been joined with Jesus' life. We're new creations, right? We get to discover this new purpose that God's given for us and, and that he's intended for us. Now, that's, that's quite a concept. Like, that, that's a lot. But if you notice, Paul is, is really setting up here, like, what I would call the beating heart of the gospel, right? You were messed up. You were dead in your sin, which by the way, is both a choice we make and an inheritance that's been handed down to us, right? Just by nature of being human, we're, we're sons and daughters of, of Adam and Eve, but God, being so rich in mercy, he intervenes, right? And he makes a way for us to be brought back to life. Why do we need to be brought back to life? And this is such, this is such a fundamental question. And I think we've got to answer it uh, if this truth about being made alive in Jesus is going to mean anything to us at all. Not only that, but I think it'll help us understand what's going on in this crazy world that we live in. Much like you, um, I've been so sickened and so saddened by what's happening in Ukraine. And um, of course, we ask ourselves questions like, how could someone do that? You know, it, it, it turns our stomachs, right? How could someone be capable of senselessly killing their brother? You know, what is going on? Not only uh, today, but throughout history, we've been so recklessly brutal to one another. What the heck is wrong with us? So to answer that, I want to talk about 
a couple things for a few minutes. I want to talk about trees, and I want to talk about gardens. And we're going to come back to Ephesians 2, but let's just press pause on that for just a few minutes. And let's go back to the beginning, and we're going to take a look at our past, okay? You know, one of the, the coolest devices that the Marvel Universe uh, and also the Star Wars universe now uses our origin stories, right? And origin stories are kind of like getting an inside look at the backstory, right? It gives us context. And we, we get to kind of find out how a certain character ended up, where they are, and, and who they are. Well, you and I have an origin story. We really do. Let's look at it together. This is Genesis 2, 8. And nine it says, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I think the the video we watched did a terrific job of sort of helping us picture, kind of in simple terms, although incomplete, of what in the world this might have looked like. But here's what we need to know. After God creates man, he plants all kinds of trees of blessing. And they're beautiful, and they bear fruit. And there's two primary trees in the garden, in the center of the garden, and one is called the tree of life, and it radiates God's life and his creative power. And God invites us to eat from it, and the one who eats from it has eternal life. And then there's this other tree, and it's the tree of knowing good and evil. So check this out. The tree of knowing good and evil is a test. It's a test of sorts. And here's the test. You've got to not eat from the tree, which is a moment of decision where I choose to trust God and give up the thing, right? Whatever the thing is that looks good in my eyes. And I, and I listen to God. When I don't do that, but I choose the thing that looks good in my eyes, my way, my preferences, my choice, my way of living, I am, as Paul says it here in Ephesians, I'm dead in sin. I'm cut off from the tree of life, who is God. So there it is. We've, we've been handed down this inheritance of making our own decisions outside of, apart from God's design. And it's unleashed this wave of death and this wave of decay on the earth. And no one has to teach you how to behave outside of God's design. We're just wired for it. We're wired for disobedience. We've talked about this before. Commonly, one of the first things a baby learns to say is, no, no, you person who loves me and is trying desperately to keep me alive. No, babies are like, you go to feed them, they're like, no, get that corn out of my face. I don't want that. One of the things I, I used to love um, to do with my kids when they were little was play this, uh, play this little game with chords on the piano. 
And um, if, if you're a musician, you, you, you'll, you'll understand this a little better, but I'd play a major chord and say, how do you feel? And they'd go, happy. That, that makes me feel happy. And then I'd change one note. Literally one note, you just move that third from a major third to a minor third and ask, how do you feel? And they go, sad. I'm sad. How do they know that? How do they know that? How can they sense sadness so young? It's just like we inherently know that there's something wrong. There's something amiss. It's, it's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. We may be alive physically for a time, but we're spiritually dead. Something's not right. And sadly, I've got, I've got more bad news. Not only uh, are we spiritually dead, but our physical bodies are also going to die. So uh, we were spiritually dead, and to boot, our physical death is on its way. And it's by our own selfish choice in a lot of ways. We've been cut off from the tree of life. So the question this morning is, how do we do it? How do we do it? How do we get back to the garden? How do we get back to communion with God? How can we be made alive again? Before we go on, I want to make a quick connection here to Ephesians 2 verse 4, right? Paul gives us the bad news in verse 1 through 3. We're dead in our sin. We've got a sinful nature. We're subject to God's anger. This is our past, And then in verse 4, we've already talked about it. This is, in my view, one of the single most important verses in the whole of the Bible. But God is so rich in mercy. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead in our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. That's Ephesians 2.4. So let's make the connection here. Being alive with Christ means, number one, your past is forgiven. Your past is forgiven forgiven. The story from the garden goes on. So in Genesis 3, God says, look, there's going to be a seed of the woman, okay, an offspring, a human who's going to come and deal with the mess, and he's going to undo it. You won't be able to do it. You're stuck with your choice. But someone will come and undo it, And in the act of undoing it, he will suffer the consequence of the choice as well. So he'll suffer along with Adam and Eve and all their children, us, who remember now have been metaphorically bitten by a snake in a garden. And being bitten by the snake means what? It means death, right? But paradoxically, being bitten by the snake will be the way he'll overcome it. Did you catch that? Being bitten by the snake, which means death, will be the way he'll overcome it. In Genesis 3, God says to the serpent, you'll bite his heel, but he will crush your head. How did he do that? How did he crush its head? It's the resurrection, you guys. When God raised Christ from the grave, there was an undoing, an unraveling of this curse that we've been talking about, this inheritance of sin and death and sadness. That's not our future because our past has been dealt with. We're forgiven. We've got a new inheritance. 
First Peter 1.4, I don't have it on, on the slide here, but listen to this. It says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we've been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. So Peter's saying, we've been made new because of the resurrection. Not only that, but notice how he says, and now we live with great expectation. He's saying, stop looking back. Stop looking at your past. Because of the resurrection, the past is forgiven, and you've been given a new inheritance. And this inheritance has been given to you. It's both been given to you and is coming to you simultaneously. I've got to admit that for most of my life, I haven't been a huge fan of springtime, mostly because it's muddy. Of course, I like the, the warmer temps, but the mud and the, you know, like the dirty streets and the messy yards, and they just kind of ruin it for me. And, um, you know, people like to ask the question, hey, what's your favorite season? And that's a pretty common question. And anytime someone would say spring, I never really got it. I'm, I'm, kind, of a, I'm kind of a summer guy. But God's been showing me something uh, over time, and it's that he's telling the same story, not only with Scripture, but he's telling it over and over again in creation. It's interesting. We've got this death that happens in the fall, and you know the, the wintertime, and the flowers die, and the leaves fall, and things get gray and bleak. Um, but then this thing happens. Every year, there's this glorious resurrection in spring, where things like literally jump back to life and color. And as Gandalf would say, it's, it's kind of suddenly a far green country under a swift sunrise. And in my view, that's a signpost. That's a signpost. Okay, that's pointing the way to something far, far grander, some greater story that's happening and that we're in. Or how about in springtime when we go to plant a garden uh, or we plant crops? What do we do? Whether it's with a hand tool or a giant plow, right, that's towed behind a tractor, we tear the earth open. We make a wound in the soil. Then we plant a seed and we cover it over with dirt, just like a funeral. And we wait, right? And we watch, and by some miracle, new life springs out of the ground, and it bears fruit. It's a death, it's a burial, and it's a resurrection. It's a story that God tells year after year after year, and he includes us in it. We've been made alive with Christ. Our past is forgiven. It's been laid to rest. It's been given a funeral. And we look forward to what's coming. Secondly, being alive with Christ means your present is meaningful. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our own life, just like we were talking about. He died for everyone 
so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. There's, there's purpose here, right? See that? See that in verse 15? He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So um, in just the last week, um, my workout buddy and I joined a new gym. And uh, we went, we, we kind of came from a rock climbing gym and the workout room in the, in the rock climbing gym is pretty rustic, we'll call it. Uh, it's like brick walls, and it's very small, and it's unusually filthy. And there's dirt and dust everywhere. There's no machines. It's just all free weights, super rustic. So we left there. We joined this new gym. First of all, it's enormous. There's, there's machines like as far as you can see. The place is spotless. It's totally pristine. But here's what I didn't expect, because I've never been a member of a, like a legit gym before. There's mirrors everywhere. <laughs> There's mirrors everywhere. Like all the way around 360 degrees, it's nothing but mirrors. So listen, I, I don't recommend people watching at the gym, because it can come across as pretty creepy, but, but watching people interact with themselves in the mirror is a hoot. It is an absolute hoot. It's so entertaining. There's, the, there's, this one, there's this one cat. Every time we see him, he's there every time we're there. I promise you, he spends more time looking at himself in the mirror than he does working out. The poor guy literally cannot take his eyes off himself. And that, I mean, that seems a little silly, but what a window. What a window into the human condition. Don't you think? We've turned ourselves into little me monsters, right? We're, we're, we're so utterly concerned with how we look and how we're perceived by others and our bank account and our property and our investments and our retirement and our comfort, and we become convinced that that is what life is about. And I'm so guilty of this, you guys. I really am. Every time I choose my own comfort, and uh, my own needs or wants, instead of sacrificing something for someone else, I feel it. You know, I, I sense it, that old inheritance that we were talking about, just kind of just still hanging around. So we can see it in ourselves if we're honest about it, right? And we can see it in, in also in the horrific scenes that are playing out around the world. It's, it's much the same. You want to know how someone can bomb and kill and terrorize innocent people? Let's go back to the garden where the deceiver says, you want control? You know, you want authority? You want respect? You want ultimate power? You want to become godlike even? And Eve plucks the fruit that God said would kill her, and we just keep on eating it. And, and for some of us, the, the, the me monster, it just makes us so numb and so isolated and so inward that we lose the capacity for love, and hate grows instead, and we know how hate plays out. 
right? Whether it's race or ethnicity or otherwise, it's the same story over and over. Wash, rinse, repeat. But not for the Christian. Paul says no. No, for those who've been made alive with Christ, they no longer live for themselves. This is a brand new way of being human. Maybe you remember after Jesus was resurrected, he was having breakfast with the disciples. And uh, he tells Peter, hey, if it's true that you love me, like you say that you do, then I want you to do something. You remember what it was? Feed my sheep, right? So Jesus was resurrected. Peter's now alive with Christ. His eternity is taken care of. Death and the grave are literally defeated forever. But Jesus is giving him meaningful purpose for his present, for his every day. His new life is to be about taking care of God's people. It's interesting. Now here's something I think that's important to take note of. Who was Peter? Well, Peter was a very wayward sheep. He had just denied Jesus to try to protect his own life. And honestly, I think that's an encouraging thought. It just shows us that God chooses real and busted people like us, but he injects our lives with purpose. And he injects our lives with meaning. And very simply, that purpose is to love each other. Take care of each other. Make disciples of Jesus. So we've got this new commission that comes as a result of a new and resurrected life. Being alive with Christ means our present is meaningful. Being alive with Christ also means your future is glorious. Your future is glorious. Guys, I've got to admit that this gets me so excited. I get so pumped up about this. First, let me say that the Bible is themed or sort of layered out a lot like a symphony. In a symphony, we have an opening movement, and then what happens is those notes are referred to and then they're developed sort of as the piece goes on. You hear them again. So the foundations are, are set. We're talking biblically now. The, the, the foundations are set in Genesis, the first few notes. And then the whole thing is building with this tension and, and this turmoil. And then the, the climax of the story with Jesus' death and resurrection. And then there's this glorious resolution at the end of the book that is not just a happy ending, but God literally takes all the sad stuff and he makes it come untrue. He makes everything new again, just like in Genesis, those first few notes. It's totally glorious. But there's these themes that keep popping up. Okay, There's this common language in these repeated words that the biblical authors use that really link the story together. Okay, Let's go back to trees and gardens for a minute. Remember when we read Genesis 2, and it said that God made trees that were beautiful and produced delicious fruit? Well, listen to this. When Jesus was resurrected, he was referred to as the first fruits from the dead. In other words, he's the first installment of something that's to come. 
put it this way. When there's a harvest that's being gathered, farmers refer to that, that early harvest as the first fruits. But you see, that's just a taste. That's just an installment on what's coming. Well, there's several instances in Scripture where Jesus is called the first fruits, meaning his resurrection is pointing us to something that's coming. Something that's coming. What is it? What's coming? Well, the end of the book tells us it's our resurrection. Not only that, it's a time of no more sadness and no more sickness or pain. And not only that, but let me, rem- let me remind you that heaven is coming to earth. Heaven is coming to earth. Think about that. We're not talking about floating around in the clouds as these bodiless ghosts. We're talking about real living bodies with renewed minds on a restored earth. How do we know that? Well, let's just look at the resurrected Jesus. There's an amazing story in Luke 24 where Jesus uh, just appears out of nowhere. And the disciples are talking to him, and they, and they freak out because they think he's a ghost. And Jesus says, whoa, hang on a second. I'm not a ghost. Look at my hands. You know, look at my feet. Go ahead and touch me, and you'll see that I'm not a ghost. So then he asks for some food, and they bring him some fish, and he eats it. And they just sort of stare at him in wonder. They're totally stunned. So this is a real body, real flesh, doing things like walking around and talking and eating. Listen, guys, this is the first fruits of what's to come. This is our forerunner, Jesus, doing exactly what we'll do. Being alive with Christ means our future is glorious because his first fruits resurrection is passed on to us. It's passed on to us. Now, I want to draw attention to some more repeated language from the garden to help us make the connection here. Okay, we don't have nearly enough time uh, to develop these ideas fully, but let, let me just summarize a few very quickly, and this is just a few. There are hundreds of these examples. So, so check this out. This is nuts. It, it all begins in a garden, right? The whole story. Adam and Eve, the tree of life, all of it. Those guys are tempted and they fail, And then the Old Testament continues with example after example of people meeting with God near or under a tree. You can look it up. Meeting with God near or under a tree, which is very much garden imagery, right? But chaos is still reigning on the earth. So God tells Noah, fashion an instrument of salvation out of you guessed it, trees that, that are going to float on the waters of God's divine justice. And then a dove brings them a branch from a tree because God's wrath has been satisfied. So he gets off the boat. It's a new earth. It's a, it's a restart earth that's fresh and it's new. And what does Noah do? He plants a garden. He eats of its fruit, and then his nakedness is exposed. It's like, are you kidding me? That didn't take long. That didn't take long. Adam and Eve all over again. 
That didn't work. We needed a better way, right? So Jesus comes. He's raised as a carpenter who uses trees to make stuff. He's telling almost all his stories about things that you find in gardens, like soil and seed and wheat and rocks and weeds. He desperately, desperately wants people to know that he is the vine. He is the tree of life, so to speak, and we're his branches. He's tempted in a garden just like Adam and Eve, but he never sins. He's literally hung on the thing that Adam and Eve rejected God with, a tree. Except now God rejects him. But he tells the criminal beside him, hanging there, not to worry, though, because that same day they'd be in paradise together. Guess what paradise translated in the Greek means? A garden. See where we're headed? He's then buried in a garden tomb. And it seems like the tree of life has been overcome by the power of death. But Jesus said he was a seed. He was a seed of God's life that would be planted in the ground and grow into a plant that would bear much fruit. Three days later, he's resurrected and Mary thinks he's a a gardener. You starting to get the picture? Whether it's the story of the Bible or the fact that springtime is literally about to start shouting the resurrection, it's all headed in the same direction to the same place, and it's back to Eden. It's back to God's original and perfect design. That's our future. One day, you guys, according to the Bible, heaven is going to descend and be reunited with earth. You know, it's interesting that if you open the Bible thinking that it's about how do I get to heaven when I die, it's actually quite different than that. It's actually saying that God created you to rule with him on earth forever. That's the original design. So it's not about how do I get to heaven. It's about how do I get to this vocational calling of ruling the earth with God forever. The last sentence of the Bible, the last sentence of the biblical narrative before it's kind of closing remarks is this. And they ruled with God forever and ever. They're on the new earth. All right, so how do we do it? Can we get back to God's original design? Well, we're in the book of Ephesians, but it turns out Paul isn't the only one who wrote a letter to the Ephesians. In the last book of the Bible, a guy named John also wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. This is what Jesus says to the Ephesians through John. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, or some translations say overcome, to everyone who overcomes, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise or the garden of God. That is wild. 
to everyone who is victorious or overcomes, I will give fruit from the tree of life that's in the paradise or the garden of God. How do we overcome so that we can eat from the tree of life? Not by anything we do, right? We had our shot. It says we overcome by the blood of the lamb. It's by Jesus' sacrificial life and his death and his resurrection that we overcome. You guys, we're going back to the garden. We're going back. Listen, church fam, being alive with Christ means your future is glorious. Your future is glorious. One day we'll be our true selves, fully alive in new bodies on a completely restored new earth. All the sad things will have come undone. There's no more war. There's no more death. There's no more sickness and suffering. God, the gardener, will have made all things new through his son. That means we can look to the future with great confidence and great hope. Being alive with Christ means your past is forgiven, your present is meaningful, and your future is so glorious. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word, your incredible inspired word that reminds us of these truths. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that is actively showing us what it means to have our past forgiven. What it means to live in a life that has purpose. And what it will mean to have a future together with you when heaven and earth reunite. What an incredible, incredible gospel you have given us. What news, what news that we have. God, we receive it again this morning, afresh and anew. We're so, so, so amazed by your love, everything that you have accomplished, oh God, through your son, Jesus. We're so grateful to be called your kids today. And we look forward with great anticipation, with great anticipation for the inheritance that we already have and the inheritance that is coming. We're so grateful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.